Greetings and welcome to Union Street Hoops. I'm your host, Paul Oren, and you're listening to a podcast dedicated to Valparaiso basketball and the Missouri Valley Conference that you can catch throughout the season on iTunes, SoundCloud, and NWI.com. What a difference 48 hours makes. Monday, after the, the day after the UC Riverside game, I sat down and recorded a 35-minute episode of Union Street Hoops, and then because life gets in the way and time gets in the way, I just was never able to edit it and get it up online, and uh, maybe that's a good thing, as sitting here today, uh, a couple hours removed, uh, you know, 20 hours removed or so from Valpo's game against High Point and a lot of the same questions that we had in the last podcast, is Valpo good, have come back. Uh, Valpo with a big win against UNLV, Valpo with a probably hairier than it needed to be, but still a kind of revenge victory over UC Riverside. And then Valpo comes to the arc on Tuesday night. The students were back, relatively speaking, compared at least to where they were on Sunday. And, uh, you know, you felt maybe a little bit of energy in the building. The game gets going. You've got Tubby Smith in the house. you got the NCAA director of officiating, J.D. Collins, in the house. I was able to sit next to him, as well as a scout from the Indiana Pacers. Rick Smits is in the house. And you feel like... You know, this is the first night game against a D1 opponent while the students are on campus and you feel like it should be good. Um, First couple minutes of the game play out. It's a slow start for each team. And then the reserves come in. Daniel Sackey, Marcus Golder, Jay Soroya. The bottom falls out of the team. And Valpo, you know, they they got it going a little bit in the second half. They jump out to an eight-point lead. And they got an alley-oop dunk to Golder that doesn't go down. They got another three-point shot that goes in and out. And and suddenly now high points right back in the game. High point goes up on a seven-point lead. A seven-point lead? Are you kidding me? Valpo erases that deficit with maybe the best play of the night, a nice uh, set play for Ryan Fazekas to curl off and get a three-pointer. He does. He ties the game. And then you really can't fault Valpo and their defense on the final possession of the game. I thought they played as well as they could have played defensively and give credit to Kamga for hitting an amazing shot, you know, in with a man in his face, and if the shot goes up, it hits the backboard, it falls through. I mean, just give the kid credit for knocking down that shot. And now there's .8 seconds left, and they inbound the ball, and Bakari Evelyn takes a shot. And from where I'm sitting on the top of the uh, the mezzanine where the, the media sits, the print media sits, I should say, um, the shot never had a chance. And I kind of laughed as he took the shot because it just looked like, it kind of looked like a, you know, like skeet shooting, like the ball was like thrown up in the air and someone shot it and it fell to the ground immediately. That was what I saw. I saw, talked to somebody after the game who was sitting in the chairback section, and I should say they were sitting, sitting in the chairback section. We'll get to that in a second. And um, they uh, they said that the shot looked good and they thought for sure it was going in when he shot it. And I was like, what did you see? And I guess it just shows... Uh, you know, depth perception and, and, and whatever. Uh, so that is a, uh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out, do we do high point first? Do we go to UNLV first? How about let's go back to UNLV first and we'll go kind of inverse order as we kind of talk about these games here. Um, because I think uh, if we tried to end on the high note of UNLV, it would be a disservice to what we saw at the arc on Tuesday night. Uh, so Valpo goes to UNLV. There was this question, is, a Val- is Valpo a good basketball team? 
They go to UNLV, and you know UNLV is not a great team, but UNLV is a tough road environment. You know, you're going across the country a little bit. Valpo's been all over the place, and uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit later. But but Valpo goes out there to UNLV, and they're down 11 in the first half. And I you think at this point, well, here we go again. Valpo's down 11. There's a lot of teams down 11 on the road in the first half that are going to pucker up and, and roll over. And Valpo didn't do that. And and Valpo, you know, did, despite Bakari Evelyn and Ryan Fazika shooting 4 of 23 from the floor, 3 of 10 from the three-point line, they were able to claw their way back into the game, due in part to um, Derek Smith's having an excellent ball game, 20 points, 12 rebounds, his first career double-double. And they forced UNLV into 25 turnovers. I mean, that is that's that's impressive right there. I mean, 25 turnovers. That is the most that Valpo has uh, has forced a team into since a Division One team since Chicago State coughed up the ball uh, 25 times in March of 2002. I read that directly off of ValpoAthletics.com. Valpo scored 32 points off those turnovers, and that was that was great. You know, they they got 32 points off turnovers. UNLV got 13. Valpo scored 18 second chance points to just six for UNLV, and Valpo scored 42 points in the paint against a you know a solid team with two big guys that were pretty good, including a guy Shakur Justin who had 14 points and 19 rebounds. So Smiths did grab 12 rebounds, but the guy he's going up against had 19 rebounds. Still, Valpo gets that win in front of 7,500 people at the Thomas and Mack Center. And now, okay, you, you start to think this this is going, this might go okay for Valpo. They showed some toughness and some grittiness against West Virginia. They won that overtime game against SIUE, which whether or not that should have ever gone to overtime, they won the game. They played admirably in a couple of their games at Myrtle Beach. You needed maybe that UNLV game to see, okay, is Valpo a good team? All right, now they go into the UC Riverside game. And there's just a whole lot to unpack with the UC Riverside game. Valpo ends up winning 82-73 to in a game that they were up double digits. They were It was down to 5, back up to 11, down to 6, back up to 11, down to 5. They could never put away the Highlanders, right? Kind of a revenge game a little bit, if you believe in that sort of thing, despite the fact that in Valpo's starting lineup, they had maybe two players that saw the floor against uh, against Riverside last year and really the, the toughest game of the year for Valpo, I thought. And uh, in, in Riverside's case, really they had Dikembe Martin and I think maybe one other guy on the team might have been Dykstra, I think, might have been the only two guys that that played in last year's game. And they got a new coach, and and so a lot of it was brand new. And uh, and Valpo wins that game, and you know jumped out to a nine point lead at the half, and then the second half the teams played even. Another strong game from Derek Smiths, and really the guy that I thought was was huge in that game was Dion Lavender, twelve points, seven rebounds, seven assists. He's just been he's been wonderful. Um, I, before we get to high point, because I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot to talk about with high point. I want to touch on a couple of Riverside things. Um, one kind of an embarrassing moment for me. We're going to take a pause from talking about Valpo basketball for a second and uh, tell you a unique kind of funny anecdote that happened that made me kind of rethink life a little bit. Um, 
after the uh, the men's game on Sunday, the the women were playing, and and they were playing Eastern Illinois, and they ended up gutting out a very good victory for for the women's team. Who, if you've not paid any attention to them. They are down six players with injuries right now, various ailments. You've got uh, an ankle that required surgery, compartment syndrome, a torn ACL, a fractured elbow, a uh, chronic neck and back injury. Um, that is, you know, all sorts of different things going on with that team at the moment. And uh, and so it's, it's, it's tough. But so Valpo's playing, the women are playing, and I, I write my story on the men's game, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of— bouncing around between the court and the media room. I'm watching the end of the football games, had some fantasy football uh, interests in in some of those games there. And uh, I come back out for about the final two minutes of the game. And I'm, you know, for those who don't know me, I'm an all-Wisconsin everything fan, and I'm a big Green Bay Packer fan. And I I walk over to uh, kind of the, the, the seating area on the baseline, and Matt Loddick is over there. Aaron Levitt's over there. Luke Gore's over there. They're kind of, you know, I'm going to take whatever opportunity I can to go over there, kind of get a sense of how they thought the game went earlier. And and anytime, I always feel this way, anytime I can watch basketball with basketball coaches, I feel like I get smarter. And it was interesting. I'm going to walk over, and, and Loddick and Gore are breaking down. There's like five, ten seconds left in the women's game. They're breaking down what they would do in this situation. And, and it was interesting. It was, it was very educational, and I very much enjoyed that. It's like getting a master's class in basketball when you can sit and, and listen to basketball coaches break down the game. It's, uh, it's always enjoyable and beneficial. Okay. In the moment there, the refs are reviewing a call, and we're kind of standing around waiting, and uh, and Matt Loddick's wife, Kylan, has walked over, and a couple of Matt's kids are over there, and in that moment, I get an alert on my phone that the Packers have fired Mike McCarthy, and I'm a, again, I'm a diehard Packer fan, I'm a Packer owner, and while I think the world of Mike McCarthy uh, as a fan, it's time to, it was time to move on, Right. Clearly, there's a fissure between him and Aaron Rodgers, and it's time for the Packers to move on. They're not going to move on from Rodgers with his $135 million contract, so you got to move on from the coach. And in that moment, I stopped being a reporter, and I I switched to being a fan because I am a fan of the Green Bay Packers. I I am a fan of the NFL. I do not report on the NFL. Um, If I ever had the opportunity to, perhaps I would rethink things a little bit, but the NFL is where I go for my sports fandom much like many of you go to college basketball. And while I enjoy college basketball, there is an element of it is, I don't want to say it's work, like woe is the sports writer. But to me, I you know, I, I don't really cheer one way or the other. I like Wisconsin. I like Marquette. But at the same time, it's work to an extent. So um, the NFL is where I go. Like, I don't think you'll catch me wearing a Wisconsin or a Marquette basketball jersey, but I certainly have plenty of Packer jerseys in my uh, my collection. And whether or not a grown man can wear an, a Packer a NFL jersey is a conversation for another time. So, in that moment, I see that McCarthy's fired, and I say in front of Matt Loddick, who is a cro- who is a coach, and in front of his wife Kylan, who I, I have grown to know and respect a lot. Um, I say, oh, the Packers fired Mike McCarthy. Oh man, I'm so happy right now. And it was a it was a fan saying I was happy they were making the move at that moment. And you know, this isn't a Packers podcast, nor am I, 
you know, somebody who should be talking about this as a, you know, professional. But I would tell you that I, uh, I think it's a good move for both parties. It gives McCarthy time to, to kind of reconvene and get to spend the you know, holidays with his family and all that, not have to worry about it. And, and he doesn't have to take questions from the media every week. Oh, Mike, is this your last job? You know, hey, Mike, are you going to get fired after the season? Hey, Mike, blah, blah. It's like, okay, time to move on. So I said it, and I didn't really think about it. Um, Valpo, there's a play that happens in the game. The ball goes out of bounds. The refs are looking at it again, and, and Kylan stops me and says, you know, I look at it from a different perspective than you. I don't ever get excited when a coach gets fired. And in that moment, I like Matt kind of turns around and looks and he's like kind of nods at me. And uh, and and I just felt so empty. Right. Like here I am kind of celebrating the fact that a coach gets fired in front of a coach and a coach's wife, who I'm sure, you know, I, I, first of all, I think like Mike McCarthy's family is going to be completely upended by this. But then I stop and really think Kylan's father was an NFL coach for years, right? Like 30 years, right? He's been in the NFL, been involved in football. And, uh, and he just recently was the tight ends coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And, and I immediately, like foot in mouth, try to like justify why I was happy. And it was just embarrassing, right? Like I felt terrible. And so uh, to to Matt or Kylan, apologies for me saying I'm happy a coach got fired. Um, you know, it was the fan in me talking. It wasn't the thinking about the human side of it, but uh, it was a funny enough moment in there that, uh, yeah, Foot in mouth, absolutely. And, you know, Kylan and I are talking a little bit. She's talking about how every year it was like, okay, where are we moving now? What's the job now? And and you, you think it's, you know, Mike McCarthy was a coach in Green Bay for 13 years. And, and to be in one place for that long in this industry and in sports and, and you move around, it's, uh, I mean, that's a lot of roots that you put down somewhere that just so seemingly get upended because a quarterback hasn't figured out how to throw a check down pass to a, instead of going for a 40-yard completion every time. It's uh, interesting, interesting to note. Okay, uh, that's one rant about that game. Uh, not rant, but uh, but interesting anecdote. One other one, and then we'll get to the high point game. Um, why on earth is the men's game first and the women's game second? What a debacle. Absolute debacle. Here's here's my problem. And, and I probably know the answer, and... Sometimes you don't want to let truth get in the way of a good story, and I'm sure the truth has something to do with the fact that UC Riverside has got a flight to catch to get home, and them playing earlier in the day probably behooves them to get home sooner, whereas Valpo women are playing Eastern Illinois, and they only have a short bus ride to get back to campus. So, sure, I understand that. Here's my problem. There were 474 people that came to the Valpo women's basketball game. There were 2,112 that came to the men's game. That's another—we'll get to that conversation here in a little bit, too. But to me, you've got 2,100 people who are at this game against UC Riverside. Valpo, including including the women's basketball team, is there watching kind of up in the— up in Section AA where they kind of sit for games. And, you know, at some point in the second half, they, uh, they're— go to their locker room, get changed in their uniforms, and as soon as the men's game ends, they come out, and they've got an hour to get ready for their game. And 
as the women are out on the court going through their pregame warmups and all of that, they're watching. You know, maybe they're not, they're not paying direct attention to it, but they're watching as hundreds and hundreds of people are filing out of the arc, leaving the arc. Imagine how dispiriting that must be to be a member of the women's basketball team or to be you know involved in that program and to just see hundreds of people filing out of the arc to leave. Yes, almost 500 people were at the game, according to ValpoAthletics.com. But I just, the visual of that is, to me, is just a problem. I Have the women's game first. Let it be the warm-up, right? Let that game be the first game. And then, you know, as the second half kind of unfolds in that game, more and more people are showing up because they're getting excited for the men's game, which is going to be later on, which is going to be an hour after the women's game. And now suddenly you've got a bigger built-in crowd that are going to be there for the men's game that are coming to the women's game. And, you know, they make an announcement at the game, at the end of the men's game, ladies and gentlemen, the Valpo women are playing in one hour. Your ticket for the men's game is your free ticket to this game. I, you know, I don't know. Flip that. You know, let it be if you have a ticket to the men's game uh, at at 4 o'clock, you get into the women's game at 1 o'clock. To say nothing of the fact that the Chicago Bears were playing at noon, and how about you make sure the Valpo men play at four, where you're going to have a bigger a bigger audience. People are going to go to B-dubs or stay at home and watch the Bears game, and then they're going to come back. I'm sure all of this is because UC Riverside has got to fly back. But still, I just to me, it's a problem, right? It's just, it's a problem. And, and scheduling... We've talked about it kind of ad nauseum. We've gone through it and whatever. But going through the schedule again, just I don't have a problem with the days so much as I have problem with the times. You know, the uh, the Valpo men, the student attendance at the Riverside game was atrocious, right? There was like 14 students in the student section. Two of them were standing. Twelve of them were sitting the band was there, but even the band was like halfway filled from what it looked like, from what it normally is. And there just weren't a lot of students there. And I don't know what the answer is other than it's clear that Sunday afternoon games just don't work. So why couldn't Valpo have played on that Saturday night, right? Well, what, I mean, maybe Riverside, you know, they, maybe their schedule behooved that they couldn't, uh, Maybe it just didn't work for them. I mean, as I take a look at at their schedule, you know, they they played Thursday the 29th at home against California Baptist, and then they played Sunday. I mean, could you have gotten Riverside to fly out on the on that Friday? They're coming across the country, sure, but could you have played on Saturday night? I don't I don't know why. Saturday night was not available to play that game, and and I'll be interested to uh, to figure that out. And again, I understand you play a Thursday night game. The last thing you want to do is play across the country on a you know on short rest, so to speak. But um, you know you're you're seeing that a little bit. Uh, you know, Valpo played Sunday in South Carolina, and they played Wednesday. I mean, I guess it's not two days later, but maybe three days is industry standard now. But to me, it's just, you know, Valpo is going to play Monday night at home against Ball State and then Wednesday night in Texas. So uh, why wasn't that game on Saturday night? Put the game on Saturday night. I don't understand the problem there. So they put it on Sunday, and there's nobody that goes to the game. Valpo's next home games, Ball State, 
Monday, the 17th, 7 o'clock game, students are gone. Saturday, December 29th, 1 o'clock, students are gone. Uh, glad that that game's actually at 1 o'clock because the college football playoffs are at 4 and 7 that night, so that'll be good to at least be able to catch those. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, Illinois State, day after New Year's, students are gone. Tuesday night, students are back, 7 o'clock against Bradley. Saturday, oh, we finally a Saturday game when students are in session, January 19th, 3 o'clock. I don't understand. I mean, it's it's a Missouri Valley Conference TV network game, ESPN3, dictated by television as to what time the game is going to be. Saturday night, January 26th, 7 o'clock against Drake, the one and only 7 o'clock game, on, one and only night game on a weekend when students are in session. Tuesday, 7 o'clock, Missouri State. Sunday, Loyola, big game, 3 o'clock. Why isn't that game on Saturday night? Well, it's an ESPNU game. Okay, well, it could be an ESPNU game or ESPN3, depending on how the teams shake out. So that's a Sunday at 3 o'clock game. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. And then the final game against Evansville, Saturday. There's another Saturday home game, last day of the regular season. All the games start at 1 o'clock. It's just frustrating, right? Like one weekend night game, that's when fans are going to show up and and they're just not there. So I, I, I just, I really struggle. Again, why was this Riverside game not played on Saturday? I it, it's it, The logistics of getting a team to fly across the country, fine, I get it. Then maybe you need to not play teams that you got to fly across the country for. It just kind of throws everything out of whack. That was my rant on the scheduling there. Let the women's team play first. Give them an audience in the late third quarter and fourth quarter of the game as people are filtering into the men's game. Give a bigger audience there. Don't conflict with the Bears game if you're going to do it on Sunday. If not, play the game on Saturday night and figure it out, right? Scheduling's hard for everybody, but let's at least try to put a good crowd in front of the two teams that are going to play. Okay, let's talk high point. What a disaster, right? From the jump, it just was a very slow-moving, sluggish first half. Valpo up 24-23 at the break. And here's a Valpo team that, against Riverside, I should say, for as bad as they played against Riverside last year, they shot 60% from the floor, 50% from the three-point line. And so here comes Valpo into this game against High Point, and they shoot 29% in the first half, 12.5% from the three-point line. And everybody was missing. Freeman missed the three-pointer. Lavender missed two. Bakari was one of two. Saki missed his lone three-pointer. Golder missed two three-pointers. The only guy who didn't miss a three-pointer in the starting lineup that takes him normally was Fizikas, who didn't take a shot in the first half. So in the post-game press conference, Matt Loddick alluded to the fact that, you know, they've been flying all over the country. They're t- I mean, and that's to say that maybe they don't have their legs, they're tired. Well, then they're, that's something he said. At the same time, Valpo's shortened their rotation. Malik McMillan has not played the last couple games, and Matt Loddick has basically come out and said after the UNLV game, he said it was the nature of the way the game shook out that Malik just wasn't getting the minutes there. Same thing happened in Riverside. Same thing happened in High Point. Okay, John Kaiser 
didn't play much. I don't think he played at all against uh, UNLV, if, if I'm correct. I think it was just an eight-man rotation. There it was. He played for two minutes against Riverside, and I thought made he made two big free throws. He made a really good defensive play. I think he grabbed a nice rebound. Kaiser, coming off cold after 38 minutes of sitting on the bench, played really well. So, you know, again, these, these guys, I don't know where you put them in, right? I mean, Smiths and Soroya. Are, are splitting time at the five. Fizikas and Golder are really kind of splitting time at the four. And you've got Lavender, Bakari, and Saki are all kind of filtering in there of uh, of the um, the point guard spot in, in that. And then you've got Javon Freeman, who's barely coming off the court at this point. So, I mean, Javon Freeman-Liberty played all 20 minutes of the second half against High Point and played all but one minute in the uh, first half. I played 39 minutes and, uh, you know, 36 for Lavender. It's getting to the point that you can't take these two guys off the court. I mean, they just make all the little plays. Freeman had 9.7 rebounds and assists and three steals and two blocks. I mean, it's just a very complete game. If he gets his shooting down, he's, I mean, he shows flashes of being a great, great player. Lavender, 8.6 rebounds, 4 assists, 2 steals. You can't take these guys off the court. Now they were combined 0 of 6 from the three-point line. That's something that needs to be addressed. Um, Against high point, Bakari Evelyn, 4 of 15 from the floor, 1 of 7 from the three-point line. He is just not shooting the ball well right now. And he's shooting 30% from the floor and 25% from the three-point line. Much like Tavon Walker was expected to be the kind of star last year, same of Bakari this year, and both guys have been hindered by just an inability to knock down shots. Tavon Walker struggled throughout much of the beginning of last season and just didn't have it for a long time. And he had mono and, and sure, but Bakari is just struggling. Now, he's got 33 assists to 20 turnovers. He's moving the ball well. It's not Dion Lavender's 49 assists to 19 turnovers, uh, but he is he's he's moving the ball well. He's got eight steals. He's, he's doing well. It's just the shooting is not there. He's 85% from the free throw line. He's 18 of 21. He's, he's leading the team at the free throw line. It's just not happening shooting-wise right now. And so that was a big struggle for Valpo. Fizikas took seven shots in the second half, including a huge three-pointer to tie the game. He finally got going, knocked down a pair of three-pointers, four rebounds, two assists, eight points. But Fizikas has also been struggling shooting the ball a little bit. He's he, coming into the game, he is 10 of his, of his last 16 but at that point, I mean, it's just from three point. He is forty three percent on the year, but you again, you just it, so it's hard to argue with that number. But he went an entire half without shooting the ball. There, he's taken forty eight three point attempts. Bakari Evelyn's taken fifty one. Nobody else on the team's taken more than twenty five, and that's Javon Freeman and Marcus Golder have both taken twenty five. Speaking of struggles, I you know he's he's, he's a great guy. But, God, that was the worst game that Marcus Gold has played in a Valpo uniform, I thought. And it, it in 19 minutes, 2 of 7 from the floor, missed all three three-pointers, 2 rebounds, no assists, a steal, a turnover, and 5 points in 19 minutes off the bench. And there, 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 was, a, there was a scout there from the, 
from the Pacers who had looked one, looked at one point to me and said, "Does this guy pass the ball often?" And and you know, to to his credit, you know, Marcus does move the ball, and um, but you know, he's got nine assists this year. He's got seven steals. He does some little plays, three blocks. But a lot of Marcus is, is a lot of times he's going for big highlight plays too, and almost threw down a dunk. Didn't and you know it, that that maybe if he gets that alley oop and throws that down to make it forty to thirty, there's probably a timeout there. There's probably a big momentum. Misses the dunk. I think High Point gets a three on the other end pretty shortly after that. It was just a tough game. It was a tough game for a lot of players. Um, one of the other concerns in the game I thought was uh, was Derek Smiths. And uh, Jay Soroya and, the, and their usage of those guys. Smiths dominated, dominated the first half. If, if, if someone can dominate in a 24 to 23 half, 13 points, eight rebounds. They didn't want to touch him. He was fantastic. And the NCAA director, coordinator of officials, J.D. Collins, is there. So Higgins, who's one of the best officials out there, you know, does Final Four games. And the other guys were calling the game, you know, pretty well and was allowing, you know, a little bit of contact, some movement, excuse me, some movement. And they were they were, they were were doing a great job. And, and so we get into the second half. And Smiths plays nine minutes, doesn't take a shot in the second half. Now, were there some halftime adjustments that were there? Yeah, but come on. Bakari Evelyn's 2 of 12 in the second half. He's missed five three-pointers in the second half, and Smiths isn't taking a shot. He's got one point from the free throw line. He missed two other free throws, four rebounds, two blocks in the half. But, you know, Soroya played 11 minutes. And guess what? Soroya didn't take a shot. So in a game where Valpo comes in, and, you know, they've got 13 points from Smiths at the half, you know, and, and they ultimately end up with 26 points in the paint. Neither one of their big guys took a shot in the second half. Now, defensively speaking, Proctor's getting to the rim a bit more, and, and Comga's getting to the rim a bit more. Proctor scored 15 points in the second half, including nine straight at one point. Defensively, I don't think it's it's a, a stretch to say that Soroya is a better defensive player than Smiths. Yes, he is. And Smiths is the better offensive player. If you could meld these two guys together, that'd be great. Smiths is the better offensive player. Soroya the better defensive player. But Soroya wasn't getting a lot of stops either. So if you're going to sacrifice offense for defense, you better make sure that defense is coming to fruition there. And now Soroy did have two blocks in the half, and, and, you know, he did two defensive rebounds. But other than that, it, there was really there was nothing. In 11 minutes of play, two rebounds, two blocks, and that was it. Not a shot attempt, not a steal assist or anything. Like, no fouls, no turnovers, no, you know, it was just kind of he was just kind of a guy. And I know he's coming back from the injury and all of that, but but Smiths has been far more active, and I just I felt like and, and again Matt Loddick said in the press conference hindsight's twenty twenty, you kind of sense what he's trying to do there, but it just it wasn't working. Somebody you know said to me at the game last night, I would have rather seen Kaiser in the game, and and I understand that you know again you want guys that are going to be able to make plays, it just. It, it, it was it was tough. So then Valpo's down seven suddenly, and then they claw their way back. And and you look like they're going to for, force overtime. They get the first stop they need. The ball goes out of bounds. I had a bad look at it. I was far as 
far away as you could possibly be from that spot on the court. And uh, so I, I couldn't even get a sense if it was close or not, who the ball went out on. I know I don't think they looked at it, but it was uh, ultimately it was um, high points ball, four and a half seconds left, and the kid made a great shot. That's all there is to it. The kid made a great shot, and uh, and Valpo just didn't have a chance to uh, to pull it out. I want to I want to look at something here that I think is an alarming alarming thing for Valpo. When push comes to shove, Val I think Valpo still can be a good basketball team. I think they've got Freeman, Lavender, Smiths. These guys have been excellent. Fizikas has got. The reputation for coming in to be an excellent shooter. Marcus Golder, I think, is a highlight reel waiting to happen. And and again, he made huge plays. For as bad as he was against High Point, he was that good against Riverside. 16 points, a couple big three-pointers. Golder is still, if I'm starting a team, I want him on my team. You know, one bad game doesn't negate all of the promise, potential, and and productivity that Marcus Golder's had in a year plus in a Valpo uniform. I still think the pieces are here for Valpo. I think they are. But here's an alarming thing. I looked back through, you know, knock out the uh, the Concordia game because that one just doesn't count. I looked at the eight Division One games that Valpo's played, and I looked at, and I've watched all of them. I've been to all of the home games, and I've watched every second of the of the away games. What player has been the best player on the floor. And while oftentimes it's the guy who scored the most points that night, part of that is because what player has decided that they are going to take over the game? Western Kentucky, it was two guys, Savage and Hollingsworth. Now, Charles Bassey probably is the most talented player on the floor, but Savage and Hollingsworth were the two guys that they were going to be the ones who were going to win that game. And, and they were. And, and, and the way that they played in that game, you know, if you look back, you see Jared Savage, 25 points with 6 of 11 from the floor, 5 of 9 from the three-point line. And Tavion Hollingsworth, 9 of 16 from the floor, 23 points, 9 rebounds, 3 steals. These guys were, I mean, they were going after it, right? They took the most shots on the team, and they made the most shots on the team. In that same game, Bakari Evelyn, 4 of 15. Ryan Fizikas, 5 of 14, 2 of 10 from the three-point line. So Western Kentucky had the best players on the floor. In the Monmouth game, Deion Lavender, best player on the floor. You know, 7 of 8 from the floor, 15 points, 8 rebounds, 5 assists. He was the best player on the floor. Now, Traor Mustafa from Monmouth was 7 of 7 from the floor. 14 points was their leading score. It was pretty good, but Deion Lavender won that game for Valpo. He was their best player. Looking at the Wake Forest game, that was the kind of the beginning a little bit of, of Derek Smith's 23 points, seven rebounds, was kind of a force throughout. Wake Forest was a pretty balanced team. They had four guys in double figures, but when push came to shove, Derek Smith's was the guy that was going to make plays in that game for his team. Valpo didn't win the game, but Derek Smith's was the best player on the floor. SIUE, a game that Valpo wins in part because Bakari Evelyn comes up with a big shot at the end of regulation and then a, a big shot to start off overtime. Well, he was Valpo's best player, 5 of 8 from the floor, 3 assists, 16 points. Williford and Williams were the two guys that took the game over. 
Willif- Tyrese Williford, 17 shot attempts, 10 field goals, 24 points. Cameron Williams, 10 of 18, 22 points. Sure, these guys are missing some shots, but they were, I mean, four steals for Williams, best players on the floor. UNLV game, Derek Smiths again, best player on the floor. 20 points, 12 rebounds, two assists, double-double, excellent, excellent play from Smiths. Um, Justin, 14 points, 19 rebounds, but it was Smiths, the guy who would, get, you know, play and play out would, would make the plays. UC Riverside, Valpo wins that game. Smiths was very good. Golder was very good, but the best player on the floor was Dikembe Martin. The guy just started, you know, just started scoring at will in the second half at 12 second half points. Now, Lavender was pretty good too, but Dikembe Martin was the guy that was putting the team on his back. And in that high point game, it was Proctor who scored nine straight points at one point in the second half. And it was Comga finished with 16 points, five rebounds, three assists, two steals, best players on the floor. Smiths looked great in the first half. And Freeman looked great throughout the game, just didn't take it over. Valpo, I think, needs who's going to be the guy, and is it going to be Smiths? Because Smiths or Lavender have been the only guys that I just listed. Oh, excuse me, I missed the uh, the West Virginia game. Issa, Ahmad, and Konate, the two players for West Virginia, 30 points, 26 points. Those guys, excellent, excellent players in that game, best players on the floor in in that contest you know that was another that was another game where if we look back at kind of how Valpo performed in that game in the West Virginia game that was another one where Smiths played really well Golder did some good things but it and Smiths had five blocks Lavender had 10 assists but when push came to shove down the stretch of the game Ahmad and Konate were the ones who stepped up so who is the guy for Valpo Valpo has had Really, if you go back through the years, you know you can you can look at the. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm quickly pulling up the schedule here. If you go back to the you know the the Brandon Wood time, you know Brandon Wood was the guy that was gonna gonna score. It was him and Corey Johnson were kind of the two guys, but Brandon Wood was going to be the guy who was going to take the shots at the end. And that gave way to, albeit a very balanced team, uh, with Bugs and Bogan and, and Boggs and, and that group and Kevin Van Vyke, but Ryan Brokoff was the guy, right? The guy that was going to be the best player on the floor, and you needed him to be the best player on the floor. And that gave way to the 13-14 season, where, you know, Levante Doherty was probably that guy for a bit, and you saw the you saw the the beginning stretches of an Alec Peters kind of taking shape a little bit, and uh, and and then certainly the next three years of Alec Peters' career, he was the guy. Last season, this was part of the problem for Valpo. I just don't think they had the guy, right? Now, I don't know if you're if you're building a team, do you want balance or do you want, you know, that alpha male? I don't I don't know that I don't construct teams. I'm not a coach. I don't know the answer to that. What I what I do know is that with the exception of Derek Smiths a couple times and Dion Lavender against Monmouth, the best player on the floor, and when I say the best player for those 40 minutes, the guy that's really just said, 
I'm going and you guys can follow me have been on the opposition. I think that's something that Valpo needs to, you know, re- really needs to think about here. Who's going to be the guy? Is it Fizikas? Is it Bakari Evelyn? Not until the shots fall. Is it Marcus Golder? The highlights are there. He makes big plays, but you got to involve everybody else when you're doing that. Is it Smiths? Smiths has been doing great, but part of that too is you need guys to get Smiths the ball. Smiths has made plays. He made three plays. If you go back and watch the film of the high point game, the first three possessions of the game or the first two possessions of the game, Derek Smiths made a couple of plays that he doesn't make as a freshman or a sophomore. He is so far improved, but but can a big guy be the guy, right? I you know, is it Freeman Liberty? Well, he's a freshman. He's really, really talented, but at what point now? Are, you know, it's it's and it's early, right? It's eight games into the year, nine games into the year, but you know, the freshman wall hits in February, right? These guys are playing longer seasons than they've ever done before. But you see flashes of him and Lavender as well. We've talked about how you know, where would Valpo be without that guy? So to me, I just I I I wonder who's the guy. And does Valpo need to be, does they need to have the guy? And I say this because one of the things I would I was critical with with Parker Gatewood last year when we would talk about the NBA is I would always get kind of upset when people would be like, oh, is it Jimmy Butler's team or is it Derrick Rose's team? Well, who cares? Just go out there and play. And But now I'm kind of seeing the flip side of that a little bit. Like whose team is, who's the guy? Who's going to be the best player on the floor? When, when, when Valpo's down, who's going to be the one that says, come fly with me? You know, and looking back last night when Valpo was down seven late in the game, you know, it was Bakari who made a big shot in the paint. And then it was Freeman who made a big shot in the paint. And then Bakari missed a three-pointer. Bakari was trying to seize that role, right? You know, but he made that shot to make it 53-48. He missed a shot out of a timeout. Freeman, uh, Smith blocked a shot. Freeman got the rebound, goes all the way, scores. Then Proctor turns it over. You know, great, great play that was made there. And all of a sudden, Bakari now uh, has got a chance to tie it, misses the shot. They get a stop, Jamal Wright. They play good defense. And then Fizikas hits a shot. So you saw Bakari Freeman and Fizikas all kind of going for it there. But just who's going to be the guy? I don't know the answer to that. And I think that's something that, that Valpo needs to kind of figure out. When when will it be that Valpo has the best player on the floor? And maybe I'm completely off in this. Maybe my assessment of this is all wrong, and if so, I'll own that. I'm really kind of curious as to what you all as listeners think in terms of is that a problem or is balance better? Maybe balance is better, right? Like, again, I am I come from the Green Bay Packer fandom of Aaron Rodgers, right? Like, almost day in and day out, the Green Bay Packers have the best player on the field, that hasn't meant a whole lot this season. So I maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong when I you know, when the Milwaukee Bucks play, they have Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's probably night in and night out the best player on the floor. And what is it gonna take for Valpo when they go into battle to have the best guy on the floor that's gonna say, I'm I'm taking you all with me tonight. Strap in. Alec Peters did that, Ryan Brokoff did that, Brandon Wood did that. Not everybody followed Brandon. Um but who's the guy this year? 
I don't know the answer to that question. Okay. Uh, I think I touched on You know what? I guess kudos to the student body. Students were back out at the game a little bit on, uh, on, on Tuesday night. They were there still sitting during the game. They're standing at the beginning. I thought this is a revelation. This is going to be huge. And, uh, and then they, then they sat down shortly after the game started. Uh, and one other thing, speaking of standing and sitting, what is it with the chair backs fit, you know, 20 seconds left in the game. Defense. You know, Valpo's playing defense. Huge possession. How come people are sitting? Get on your feet. Let's go. Like, big, big part of the game. And let's let's get the crowd going into it. And I know that people are a little stunned and shell-shocked that you're in a game with high point, but you're in a game with high point. Like, get on your feet and cheer and be loud and be disruptive or do whatever you need to do. And people are just kind of sitting there waiting for the game to end one way or the other. I was kind of taken aback by how little atmosphere there was in a tie game with 20 seconds left in the game. Conversely, when the women played on Sunday afternoon and they were, you know, they're up two and Eastern Illinois has the ball, the 474 people that were there were up on their feet and they were loud and and it, it felt different. I don't, I don't know what was going on. And it just, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. All right. Uh, next week, scheduled to have Mark LaBarbera on the podcast. I've buried the lead. Next week, we're scheduled to have Mark LaBarbera on here. He's going to talk about kind of an interesting promotion thing that, that Valpo is doing. And then I've, I've got some questions for Mark, including a very unique question that might be signifying a changing changing idea around the Valpo Athletics Department. We'll save that for next week. Mark LeBarber will be on the podcast. As for right now, Valpo going to George Washington on Saturday. If they can win that game, you know, that maybe does that right the wrongs of losing the high point? I think losing at home is always tough. That was probably, you know, a dis- probably the most disappointing loss of any of them so far. Certainly more disappointing I would think that the, even the UND exhibition loss, because guess what? Ah, that didn't count. But uh, Valpo at George Washington on Saturday, if they can if they can bounce back and not not let this game beat them two games in a row, maybe you know we're still kind of wondering is Valpo good? And I think it's a question that we may be asking all the way until Arch Madness. We'll have Mark LaBarbera on the podcast next week. Thank you all for listening. Go get your Christmas shopping done. Thank you again once again for listening to Union Street Hoops.